This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, let me welcome all of you to this evening. I think you're going to find it an extraordinary event. Uh, as many of you know who have been attending Taubman events for many years, um, we try to mark Yom HaShoah HaGivurah with some sort of film or presentation which helps us to understand the significance of the events which began to unfold in Europe in 1933 and continued, of course, until the end of the war in 1945. So we have a a distinguished writer with us. And I'm not going to repeat any of the things that are in your brochure, right? You don't want me to do that. But I want to read you... uh, a short comment by the reviewer of this book, Three Minutes in Poland, by uh, Louise Steinman. And she wrote, in the pages of Glenn Kurtz's marvelous book, the ghosts from those three minutes are breathtakingly brought to life. Um, I, I was um, stunned by that. Because as some of you know, I spent a portion of the summer teaching in Poland for the World Union of Progressive Judaism. And I remember this one moment that was singularly uh, powerful for me and reminded me a great deal of what our speaker tonight, Glenn Kurtz, is doing. I was taking a train from Warsaw to Krakow. Some of you may have taken that same train. And I realized that the beautiful countryside that we were going through was the last thing that millions of Jews saw before they were taken to the death camps. That same rail line is the one that goes to places like Auschwitz-Birkenau. And I realized that the landscape of Poland for me as an American Jew was haunted. It's a haunted landscape. Um, And so to have... Glenn Kurtz, here this evening to take us back to 1938 and to take us into the lives of the people of this village is an extraordinary event that perhaps takes some of us into that haunted landscape. Please welcome now Glenn Kurtz. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you very much to to Dr. Hecht and Dr. Um, Wallach for inviting me into the Taubman Symposia for inviting me. Uh, It's really a privilege to be here. I'll tell you a story tonight that begins, like so many stories, with my grandparents' vacation videos. My grandparents were both born in Poland in the 1880s and came to the United States. Is that okay? (laughs) All right. Turn off your lapel mic. Well, the lapel mic is helpful. How's that? Is that better now? Okay, good. I'll begin again. Um, my, par- my grandparents were both born in the 1880s in Poland and came to the United States as small children with their families in the 1890s. 
I never knew my grandfather, who died before I was born. And my grandmother, although she lived to be 96 years old, never, ever spoke about her childhood and certainly never spoke about her travels. Having come to the United States as small children, they had the American Jewish immigrant experience made good. And in 1938, they traveled back to Poland, to Europe. And that is how this story begins. But I didn't know anything at all about it. In 2009, searching in my parents' closet in Florida, I came across a home movie. And this was the first thing that I saw. Our trip to Holland, Belgium, Poland, Switzerland, France, and England, 1938. You can see here my grandmother on the left, enjoying a very exciting passage across the Atlantic in the golden age of steamship travel. Um, she's sitting with three friends of my grandparents, Mr. Louis Molina on the end, and Mr. Molina's wife, Lillian, and his sister, Essie Diamond, next to him. When I found this film in 2009, everything that I knew about it was contained in that title sequence. It was a trip to Belgium, Holland, England, France, Switzerland, and Poland, and it was in 1938. But simply seeing the words Poland and 1938 together immediately told me that this was something of significance, and I knew that I wanted to try and understand more about it. I'll read a short passage from the beginning of my book just to sort of give you a, a context for what the significance of this film became and how I began to try and understand what we were looking at in the images. In the summer of 1938, my grandparents, David and Lisa Kurtz, traveled from New York to Europe for a six-week summer vacation. Together with three friends, they visited England, France, Holland, Belgium, and Switzerland, and passing through Germany, they made a side trip to Poland, where both my grandparents were born. I'm holding a postcard from this trip that my grandfather sent to his daughter, my aunt. The card shows a painting of the Holland-American liner, New Amsterdam, crossing a green-black sea. Spray at the ship's waterline and white caps on the waves give the impression of motion. The black hull and white Art Deco superstructure gleam against clouds tinged with pink and blue. On the reverse side, my grandfather writes, on the boat five days, tomorrow we land at Plymouth, England, then Boulogne, France, then Rotterdam, Holland. We get off at Rotterdam. My aunt, Shirley Kurtz Mandel, produced this postcard three years after I first asked what she knew of her parents' 1938 trip. The manila envelope containing this and about 30 other postcards from David and Lisa had been stuffed in a box of unrelated papers, forgotten for more than half a century. Shirley rediscovered it in late 2011, when after 63 years, she moved out of her New York apartment. One year after my grandparents' vacation, Europe would be at war. On September 1st, 1939, the German army overran Poland. And within a few years, with terribly few exceptions, the Jewish inhabitants of the Polish towns my grandparents had visited would be murdered. 
But David and Lisa Kurtz could not foresee the future. My grandparents and their friends were tourists, relatively prosperous American tourists, blissfully unaware of the catastrophe that lay just ahead. They rode across Europe with trunks of clothing, stayed at five-star hotels, shopped, and admired the sights. They visited art galleries and cathedrals. They strolled in the Jardin Exotique overlooking the old city of Monaco. They rode a small-gauge railroad through the Swiss Alps. Like tens of thousands of other Americans, in the summer of 1938, my grandparents toured Europe's grand attractions for pleasure. The postcard my grandfather sent to his daughter has an English one-pence postage stamp with a cancellation pocketboat posted at sea. It's postmarked Plymouth, Devon, the 29th of July, 1938, 6.30 p.m. From this, I learned the date of my grandparents' departure, July 23rd, 1938. And that slender fact opened onto a wealth of period detail giving me for the first time a glimpse at the scene as my grandparents began their voyage. Rains delay the sailing of New Amsterdam, reported the New York Times the day after their embarkation. The Holland-American liner at New Amsterdam, under the command of Captain Johannes Beale, Commodore of the line, sailed from her Hoboken piers 40 minutes behind schedule after awaiting the arrival of four passengers from Philadelphia who had been delayed by a washout on the highway. The four Philadelphians, all prominent socially, according to the Times, had called ahead from Plainfield, New Jersey, when the road north was hidden by swirling water. The New Amsterdam was a stylish new ship. Its maiden voyage in May 1938, just two months earlier, had been celebrated with lavish coverage in newspapers and magazines. This departure was less glamorous, the return leg of the ship's fourth round trip, but still worth a few column inches devoted mostly to society gossip. A July 23rd piece in the Times entitled Ocean Travelers noted that Mrs. Adam L. Gimble, Mrs. Mary von Rensselaer Thayer, and Mr. and Mrs. John B. Ballantyne would be among the 850 people on board when the ship finally sailed under cloudy skies that Saturday. Mr. and Mrs. David Kurtz of Flatbush, Brooklyn are not mentioned in the press. They were comfortable, but not prominent socially. Their travel plans concerned only the immediate family, and as a result, tracing their movements through Europe in the summer of 1938 has proven to be a challenge. I've been trying to determine the precise date of departure and the name of the ship for years. I know it now only because my aunt happened to save this postcard. I would never have known of my grandparents' trip at all or felt compelled to spend years trying to unearth its details, had David and Lisa not brought home a unique memento of their travels, which also happened to survive. On this vacation, my grandfather carried a 16-millimeter home movie camera. He shot 14 minutes of black-and-white film and Kodachrome color. He captured scenes of the ocean crossing and of a ferry ride in Holland. He filmed my grandmother and their friends walking in Brussels, sunning themselves on the Mediterranean coast near Cannes, feeding pigeons in a Parisian park. And he documented three minutes of their visit to Poland, footage of ordinary life in a small, predominantly Jewish town one year before the outbreak of World War II. More than 70 years later, 
these few minutes of my grandfather's home movie would transform their summer vacation into something of lasting, even of historical value. Through the brutal twists of history, my grandfather's travel souvenir became the only surviving film of this Polish town. Eventually, his home movie would become a memorial to its lost Jewish community and to the entire annihilated culture of Eastern European Judaism. The majority of the film looks very much like everybody else's vacation footage, millions of which you'll see now on YouTube or on Facebook. Here they are, of course, in Holland, in Belgium, in Switzerland, in the south of France, and of course in Paris. What makes the film extraordinary are the three minutes in Poland. Obviously, the arrival of Americans was a big deal. Mr. Molina. One of the things that makes this film so extraordinary is that almost two, min of it, two minutes of it are in color.
And that's it. Just three minutes of film. There's so much information in these few minutes of film. Even not knowing anything about what it is that we're looking at, we see the physical culture of this community. We see how often they shove each other. Uh, We see the clothing. We see the gestures. We see the way that they congregate on the street. But when I found the film, of course, what's most powerful about it is something that we know that they don't know, which is what's going to happen, how brief their future is going to be. As soon as I saw the film, I knew that I wanted to do something with it, to try and understand the film, if possible, on the same level of detail of the information that's captured. The thing about film is it's always of a particular place, on a particular day, and of particular people. But if you don't know where or who or when the film was taken, then it immediately becomes something extremely general. It becomes pre-war Jewish life, shtetl life. And that's not inaccurate, but it's so general that it doesn't really tell us something. It kind of mythologizes the people. It turns them into symbols when they are, in fact, individuals. And my purpose in in trying to understand the film was to try and create, in essence, a micro-history, something on the scale of detail that is contained in the film itself. The first thing, however, was the film had to be restored. When I found it, it had deteriorated so severely, it was like a hockey puck. It was a single unit of plastic. I donated the original footage to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and it took five months for the, the laboratory to soften the film so it could be unwound. And you see it here towards the end of that process, what should be nice flush lines of film, look sort of like uncombed hair. One of the things that we learned in the course of the restoration process was the kind of camera my grandfather used to shoot it. It was a magazine Kodak, Cine Kodak magazine loading camera. It was uh, something that was introduced in 1937 and was promoted quite heavily by the Kodak company. Here's an advertisement from Vogue magazine. It says, seems as if half the people we see off carry a movie camera. They're really trying to promote the camera. It was an expensive item, but it wasn't uh, out of the range of middle-class Americans. There were two models, a sort of low-end and a high-end. The low-end, I I compare it to now buying an iPad or buying a computer. It it was expensive, but it was uh, about $75 at the time, the the low-end and about $100 for the high-end. But learning just about the camera and learning about the, the people was uh, something much more difficult. When I asked my family, my father and my aunt, if they knew anything about the film, the first thing that my aunt and my father told me was that it showed my grandmother's hometown. And I was, in fact, able to find a survivor from my grandmother's hometown, which was on the far eastern edge of Poland, a town called Berezna. There was a survivor from that town, and I interviewed him, and I showed him the film, and the first thing that he said, the moment he saw it was, it's not my town. 
which was a big surprise to me. I mean, I think if he had watched it and just shrugged, I might have just let it go. I might have thought, well, I did my bit, I tried, he can't remember anything, and so that's all there is to it. But I think because I expected it to be that town, and it turned out not to be that town, that our whole family legend of this film was wrong, it became something of a mystery, and I became quite, uh, quite tenacious in trying to find out what town it was. I figured if it wasn't my grandmother's hometown, the chances were that it was my grandfather's hometown. I searched in, of course, the, uh, the Shoah Foundation, the Steven Spielberg Visual History Archive, and there were five people who had given testimony from my grandfather's hometown. But in the intervening years, four of those five people had passed away. The one woman who was still living, in fact, lived in Yonkers, not far from me in New York, and I interviewed her. But she was seven years old when the war started, and she survived in a particularly violent way. And she was so traumatized still, even in her, in her late 70s now, that she couldn't remember anything, or she wouldn't remember anything. She would barely even look at the film. She would look and look away and say, I can't recall. She couldn't even confirm that the town in the film was the town where she had been a child. So I was forced to go into archives. I went to the Joint Distribution Committee archive in New York City, the Yiva archive in New York Public Library. Eventually, I went to archives around the world. And ultimately, uh, almost a year after I first discovered the film, I found this photograph here on the right in the Ghetto Fighters House Museum archive in Western Galilee, Israel. And that was clearly labeled Synagogue Door, Neshelsk, Poland. And you can see here on the upper panel, there's a carved lion. And here in the still from my grandfather's film, the same lion in the upper panel of the door. It was this photograph that finally confirmed that the town in the film was my grandfather's hometown of Naszelsk, Poland. Naszelsk is about 35 miles northwest of Warsaw. Here's Warsaw on the bottom, Naszelsk up at the top. In 1938, it had a population of about 4,500 people, of whom about 3,000 were Jews. Because of its proximity to Warsaw and because of a rail line that runs through it, it was on the road to Warsaw from East Prussia. And so when the German army invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, Nischelsk was occupied almost immediately. By September 4th, 1939, the town was in German hands. There were acts of brutality immediately. The synagogue was desecrated. There was rape, looting. Men had their beards forcibly shaved. They were picked up off the street for work details. The territory that contains Nischelsk was, at the end of October 1939, annexed to the German Reich. It became part of Germany. And Himmler issued an order that all of the Jews in these annexed territories should be removed by the end of the year, by the end of 1939. And so it was only three months after the German invasion, on December 3rd, 1939, that the entire Jewish population of Neshelsk was deported on a single day. They were loaded onto cattle cars, shunted around different rail lines for several days, and eventually dumped in two towns in central Poland. Poland, of course, was divided into three. Everyone remembers the Germans invaded from the, east, from the west on uh, September 1st, 1939. We don't remember as often that the Soviet Union invaded from the east on September 17th, 1939, and they divided the country between them. 
The German-occupied area was divided into two, the annexed territories in the north, which became part of Germany, and then central Poland, which was turned into occupied Poland, the general government. And that was where the majority of the death camps eventually would be built. But in December of 1939, there were no camps yet in Poland. There were no ghettos. The inhabitants, the Jewish inhabitants of Nischelsk, were simply dumped as refugees in two towns, Lukov and Nizerich. These two towns at that time were just towns in Poland with Jewish populations similar to the one in Nischelsk. Eventually, however, those two towns would be turned into among the largest feeder ghettos. They would be filled, and then in a major action, the entire town would be emptied and sent to uh, Treblinka. And then the, the ghetto would be refilled with new arrivals from elsewhere in Europe. So it was in August of 1942 that the majority of Jewish Nashelskers who had been deported to these two towns were sent to Treblinka. By the end of the war of the 3,000 Jews who had lived there when my grandparents visited, fewer than 100 were still alive. And that was in 1945. I began my search in 2009. Well, in the absence of someone who could tell me about the town, I was able to gather a great deal of documentation from the archives that I mentioned, I was able to find memoranda from the Landsmannschaft, the American organization of people from this town who had uh, gathered together and they would raise money and send it back to their relatives who remained in, uh, in Poland. Um, I was able to find other kinds of letters and a few photographs. But the problem was, how do you connect the names in these documents with the faces in the film. I found the 1929 business directory for this town, which had the list of many of the business owners. But again, although I could learn the names of people who lived in the town, it was impossible to bridge the distance between that realm of information and the information contained in the film. It was more than two years after I began my search that out of the blue, I received an email. A young woman in Detroit had seen the film online at the Holocaust Museum's website, and as the camera panned across the crowd, one face leapt out at her. It was her grandfather. He was 13 years old. In my grandfather's film, he appears for less than a second, and he was then 87 years old. He's now 90 years old. I just saw him yesterday. He was born Moshek Tuchhendler in Nashelsk. Eventually, he came to the United States, and his name became Maurice Chandler. Mr. Chandler is possessed of an extraordinary memory. It was as if he'd been waiting his entire life to talk about this town. And what I'd like to do with the bulk of my presentation is just share with you some of the, the ways in which the information that he was able to provide opened out and uh, began to collect the different fragments that I had collected from other sources. So first, I'll play you just a very brief uh, segment of one of the first interviews that I did with Mr. Chandler. And we have better pictures of them coming up later. Yes, but yes. The, the man with the white beard? Yeah, the man with the white beard, I think he was sort of the, uh, what they called, 
what they call the ascetic person. His name, everybody knew him by one name. His name was Cheskia. Cheskia. It's a biblical from the Tanakh. Nobody knew what he lived of. Mm. But he was dressed just like that with that beard. And everybody fed him. He would walk into everybody's house. <clears throat> I remember he used to eat chopped liver with strong onions. And you knew he was coming before. <laughs> you know, black bread, this and that, very simple life. And everybody thought he was, you know, the Jewish version of sainthood. Yeah. Like a mystic? Heskia. He would go from different houses like the, the Bornsteins when we used to be there. He would come up and he tells told stories from the past and so on and then he'd leave. Nobody knew where he'd slept. Probably in the shul or something. He was that type of a character. Now, the men, the shorter men With the black beard. Yeah, his name is Chamnusen Zweighaft. And he was the one they called him the Matsaiva Kritzer. He was the one that chiseled all the uh, headstones, headstones for the cemetery. Well, with information on this level of detail, it became possible to begin to tell a story about this town in a, in a dimension that was really beyond anything I had imagined would be possible. Mr. Chandler was able to recognize quite a number of people. He remembered the names of people, of course, who don't appear in the film, but who were important to him or his life or his family. And from the information that he gave me, I went back into the research I had undertaken and reached out to the, uh, into different sources for the names that he recalled. Eventually, I located eight survivors from Nashelsk still living. One of them had had a stroke and was no longer able to speak, but I interviewed the other seven. And as I say, what I'd like to do is just share some of the kind of loops of information that developed from, from these sources. One of the first people Mr. Chandler introduced me to was a man named Kiva Richmond. Kiva Richmond was also born in Nashelsk, but he was only three years old in 1939 when his family caught one of the last boats to leave Poland in August 1939, and he came to the United States. His family brought with them their family photo album. And this photo album was a gold mine. Um, I, of course, I copied all of the photographs in the album. And then every time I met a survivor or met someone else who was from the town, I shared each of the pieces of information that I'd collected. So in fact, it was more than a year after I met Kiva Richmond that I was in Israel. The American Landsmannschaft uh, in the post-war period had raised money and built a small housing complex in Israel for uh, the survivors from the town. Of the 100, approximately 60 ended up settling in Israel. These are people, of course, who are very difficult now to reach on the internet. Um, indeed, it's almost impossible even to reach them on the telephone. Um, I had contacted the community center at this, at this housing complex. They said, yes, there were some old people who were still living there, but they really didn't know where they were from or whether they were natives of Nichelle. Eventually, I went to this town, to this housing complex, and literally, literally knocked door to door. So it happened that I knocked on the door and met Mikhail Koprak. Mr. Koprak was very, very ill. In fact, he was on his way to a doctor's appointment and was quite reticent, didn't want to talk to me. And I knew I had only a moment. But as soon as he said his name, 
I remembered a photograph in Kiva Richmond's photo album, and I pulled that up on my computer and showed it to him. In that moment, Mr. Koprock absolutely transformed from a sickly, elderly man. He became like a little child. He was jumping up and down. He was grabbing my arm. The man in the photograph is his father, and he didn't have any photographs of his father. This was the first time he'd seen his father's face since he left Nischelsk in October of 1939. And in fact, you can see extraordinary resemblance just in the, the shape of the face. Well, Mr. Koprock canceled his doctor's appointment, uh, and then I couldn't get him to shut up. He, uh, we talked for several hours <laughs> and uh, watched the film. And of course, what often happens when one memory is dislodged, a whole cascade of memories comes forward. And so, in fact, Mr. Koprock was able to supplement information that Mr. Chandler had given. So Mr. Chandler recognized Hamnussen Zweighoft, or Hamnussen Zweighoft, the Metzaiva Kritzer, the man who chiseled the gravestones in Nischelsk. And uh, Mr. Koprock also remembered Hamnussen Zweighoft, and he told a story about him. He said that uh, the workshop where he did this carving was right next door to the yeshiva. And after school, the boys would go and you know, have fights throwing uh, the chips of stone at each other. And of course, this would annoy Mr. Mr. Zweikhoft, and he would try and get rid of them. And what Mr. Koprock said is, Zweikhoft would threaten to send the angel of death after them. And he was laughing. He said, well, this was a very effective threat because, well, given his profession, the boys figured he had a pretty close connection to the angel of death. <laughs> and so they were genuinely scared and would run away. Again, it was this kind of detail that it became possible to piece together. This little memory that Mr. Koprak had in Israel was triggered because I had a photograph that had been sitting in a closet in Florida, and I had seen that photograph because Mr. Chandler had recognized someone in the film. Hamnussen Zweighoft, who is in the film here, also appears in another photograph in Kiva Richmond's photo album. Here he is in the center, the only gentleman in black. And Kiva's mother had annotated this. It was labeled the Nischelsk Committee to Help the Needy. And indeed, Kiva's father here is in the center row, looking uh, pretty tough. Eventually, it was possible to learn the names of all of the men in this photograph. Um, and as it often happened, I would learn a piece of information which I wouldn't know what to do with, and it would be many years uh, until somehow some other fragment would emerge that would make that information important. So it was with this gentleman here on the bottom, sitting next to Kiva's father, whose name was uh, Chaim Huberman. Chaim Huberman appeared, I knew his name already, he, he appeared in one of the lists in the Landsmannschaft documentation about uh, sending money back to Nischelsk. There was always the question of, well, if we send the money, how is it going to be distributed? So they elected a committee each year to distribute the money. And in 1938, Chaim Huberman was on that committee. So I already knew his name, and here we had a photograph of him. Chaim Huberman's name also appears in another document, which I found somewhat later, at Yad Vashem in Israel. The only document in their collection which uh, refers to Nischelsk is this. It's a protocol of a meeting of the Committee to Aid the Jewish Refugees in Lukov. So this would have been um, the, after the deportation to one of the towns, Lukov, the Jewish community of Nischelsk was trying to reform itself, and the notes of the 
of the meeting, like votes of every other meeting. They decide to elect a president and a secretary, and the names of the people present are listed. Among them is Chaim Huberman. Here is his signature. And it was still another year after that when I met Andrzej Lubanetsky, another survivor from Nashelsk, who is now 96 years old and lives in Windsor, Ontario. Mr. Lubanetsky, after the war, he had been in the Red Army, and he ended up in Warsaw. After the war, he became friends with a man named Beryl Mark. Beryl Mark would go on to become the first president of what's the Jewish, called the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw. This is the repository of the Ringelblum Archive. The Ringelblum Archive is the collection of papers and documentation collected by um, Emanuel Ringelblum, a historian, in the Warsaw Ghetto, documenting the daily life in the ghetto, as well as collecting reports from outside the ghetto that would come through secret couriers into the ghetto. And these were then buried in milk cans underneath the ghetto and rediscovered after the war. Through his connection with Mr. Mark, Andrzej Lubanetsky was present at the discovery of the Ringelblum archive. Among the 30,000 pieces of paper in the Ringelblum archive were two pages, which are the only first-hand account of the deportation from Nashelsk. And eventually, I found as well in a report from 1941 that was in that archive, there's a, a report from, uh, on the conditions in the different towns in the Lublin district of Poland. And as a PS, on one piece of paper, there's the note that says, our friend, the counselor from Nashelsk, Chaim Huberman, was shot for giving something to the Russians. So in fact, Chaim Huberman, and it gives the date on which that occurred, October 15, 1941, in Lukov. Chaim Huberman was the only member of the Nashelsk Jewish community whose precise date of death I was able to determine. Another person that Mr. Chandler recognized in the film was this man with the beard. Here, it's the same photo enlarged. He remembered the name Kubel. That was all he remembered, Kubel. Among the many sources of information that I consulted were also the Jewish genealogical forums. These are places online where people searching their, for family history will sometimes post queries of, uh, with the name of the town and the name of their families, the people they're trying to research. So among, uh, in the course of my research, I went into these forums, and I found a forum for Nashelsk, and there was indeed a woman searching for the family Kubel from Nashelsk. It happened that her last email was from 1996. Uh, nevertheless, I emailed her, and uh, a month and a half later, she emailed me back and sent this photograph. You can see the man here in the upper corner is the same as in my grandfather's film. The woman on the far right here in the snazzy plaid outfit, Sura Kubel, is the woman that I spoke to. Her, that was her mother. Sura Kubel had come to the United States in November of 1938, the only member of her family to leave Poland. She lived with her sisters and the one brother. The other man standing is the eldest sister's husband, Josef Lederman. But the woman that I spoke to didn't even know the names of her mother's siblings. Her mother had passed away. She had found these photographs after her mother's death. And her mother had never spoken about her family in Poland. Again, eventually, it was possible to learn the names of all of these people. 
um, all of the siblings of her mother. And the parents had died in the aftermath of World War I, most likely in the Spanish flu epidemic. And the five sisters and one brother lived together in the Shelsk and ran a housewares store. Mr. Chandler remembered them because he recalled that his mother referred to, ma- referred to them as the Maidlich, the girls. After Sarah Kubel's death, her children, Faith Olstein, whom I was talking to, and then her son, Jerry Goldsmith, whom I met somewhat later, found a bundle of letters that the Kubel sisters had sent to Sura starting in November 1938 and ending in the spring of 1942. In those letters was, were a couple of other photographs, including this one, which Jerry Goldsmith, Sarah Kubel's son, had had and had never realized was the same people. If you look at it, it's in fact the same family members. Shandl here, the eldest, who's sitting in the center, she's the only one who moves. Otherwise, the positions are all the same, with the exception of Sarah, who was, of course, already in Brooklyn. The transformation in these faces is to me, one of the most haunting things that I encountered in the course of my research. The difference in Shandl's face alone is, to me, extraordinarily chilling. This was contained in a letter from 1940, so while they were in the Warsaw Ghetto. And obviously, things were, were still fairly good because they're well-dressed, and they have the resources to have a photograph taken. But the expression in their faces was something so uh, altered that uh, I think it, it, uh, that alone tells a story. The men obviously have shaven their beards to be less conspicuously Jewish. And the look in Shandl's face, I'm going to go back once more. Oops, sorry. Here, quite self-sufficient and uh, self-possessed. And just two years later. I'll come back to the Kubel family in a moment. There were quite a number of treasures in the Kubel family archive. They also had this photograph. They didn't even know why they had it. Eventually, we noticed that uh, the brother Avram Kubel is here, in fact, standing next to the same gentleman he stands next to in my grandfather's film. I showed this photograph to Mr. Chandler, and he was quite, quite amazed. For one thing, it was taken in the workshop of his family's store. They had a clothing uh, store where they sold uh, uh, manufactured clothing. And you can see here up on the wall, the, the fashions of the day are, uh, are already designed. One of the things that was most shocking to him was that Mr. Chandler himself appears here in the center, one year after my grandfather's film was taken. Uh, the date on this photograph is actually April 15, 1939. What made this so powerful to Mr. Chandler, however, was not his own face, but rather the fact that, in addition, his older brother, Avram, his younger brother, David, and indeed, his father are all in the same picture. He didn't have pictures of any of them. This was the closest thing that he ever saw to a family photograph. Another member of his family here, Elia Applebaum, was a cousin and who lived with the family. He was the chief clothing designer and responsible for the designs up on the wall. Eventually, it was possible to name most of the men in this photograph. It was a gathering of the Agudas Israel, the, uh, the religious political party that took place in his family's store. That was not 
the last of the surprises of the Kubel family. I became interested to try and learn more about Sarah Kubel's emigration, and I was able to find the, the ship's manifest for when she arrived in the United States in November of 1938. And here from the detail, you see Sarah Kubel, age 26, profession corset maker, from Nashalsk, Poland. Her sister, Ruchel, is given as the closest contact. And in America, the contact, Louis Molina, my grandfather's friend, the man who appeared in that first clip that we saw of them crossing the ocean. This was quite a surprise as well. It meant, obviously, that the Kubel family and the Molina family were in, in contact and most likely related in some way, and that most likely the Kubel family knew that this, the Americans were going to come and visit because Sura emigrates just a few months after my grandparents' trip. It's also very possible, there's a scene in the film where a woman's fixing her hair, it's quite dark, and she almost turns around, just not quite enough to recognize her face. It's very likely that that was taken in the Kubel family home. When my grandparents returned on September 5th, 1938, I think that what they felt they had uh, brought home was just a travel souvenir, a memento of their trip. I think they had no idea the significance of what they had accomplished. And I'll read just another brief passage from the end of my book to try and give a bit of context for what the significance of the film eventually became. In April 2013, Maury, Mr. Chandler, invited me for a festive brunch with Kiva Richmond and Jerry Goldsmith, Sura Kubel's son. Two men born in Nashelsk, and the son and a grandson of Nashelskers. We ate bagels and locks and whitefish and capers, cakes and cookies, drank coffee and orange juice and quite a bit of champagne. For several hours, we sat around the table talking about the paths that had led us to be there together and the connections that made us feel like family. Jerry Goldsmith had brought along the letters and photographs that Sura Kubel's sisters in Nashelsk had sent to her in Brooklyn after her emigration. The letters began soon after Sura's departure in November 1938, and they ended in the spring of 1942 when the German authorities prepared for the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto. Most of the letters were in Yiddish, which Jerry had never had translated. But one card in Polish had an attached translation, typewritten on the stationery of the International Red Cross. Dated September 17, 1940, it stated, our entire family is alive and well. We all live in Warsaw on Muranowska Street, one, door number 41, Eppelbaum. Please try to secure emigration permits for us. Eppelbaum, Elia Eppelbaum, was Maury's cousin, the chief clothing designer for his family's store. Looking at the card, we realized that the Kubel sisters, along with their brother Avram and the eldest sister's husband, Yosef Lederman, had also most likely lived in the Applebaum's apartment in the Warsaw Ghetto. Jerry's aunts and uncles, therefore, had most likely been with Maury's family when all of them were deported to Treblinka sometime after July 22, 1942. The letters the Kubel family sent to Sura gave wrenching insight into this time. 
Sitting at the table, Maury translated some of them for Jerry. The pre-war letters, written in a beautiful, almost calligraphic Hebrew script, were the kind of chatty letters that sisters write to each other. Dear Sura, why do you write so little? I was hoping for a longer letter. One sister scolds on December 21, 1938. Shandala had a problem with the landlord. Thank God they made peace. Everything's all right, but it didn't go that easily, and Uncle Mendel had to come twice. There was even a reference to Kiva Richmond's family, noting the preparations for their departure for America in August 1939. The letters from a year later are quite different. They're no longer in Hebrew characters. The sisters write Yiddish and Polish in Roman script to allow the German censors to read. Maury translated another letter with an illegible date, probably late 1940. We have it good here, Sura's youngest sister, Laiba, writes. That's for the censors, Maury commented. He continued reading out loud. Cousin Yaliris grew big. Maury suspected a code that had come into use among the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto when writing to relatives in the United States. Yaliris, he thought, stood for the Germans. The Germans have grown big. They won't let Lechem visit us. Lechem, Maury explained, is the Hebrew word for bread. Same thing my grandmother wrote, Kiva commented. His grandparents, too, were in the Warsaw Ghetto at that time, also writing desperate, coded letters to their family in America. Maury continued reading. We're waiting for Ezra's brother. He stopped again and explained, you know, Ezra in Hebrew means help. So this is... He didn't finish the sentence. The letter was a cry for help. We sat at the table in silence until Kiva asked, do you have any idea how many times I've wondered why was I so lucky? But we were all incredibly lucky. Kiva's family had left Poland in the last week before the war. Jerry's mother had escaped in November 1938 with Louis Molina's assistance. Mori had survived the war in Poland, less than 100 miles from Neshelsk and just 30 miles from the Treblinka death camp. And David Kurtz's parents had left Neshelsk in the 1880s to seek a better life in America. Our brunch that day felt like the culmination of a journey that had begun four years earlier when I discovered David Kurtz's film a journey that took a dramatic, unexpected turn two and a half years later when I first spoke with Maury Chandler. Each of us at the table that day had contributed to the other's family histories, but it was my grandfather's film that had led to this symbolic reunion, bringing together the remnants of families and these previously isolated fragments of Nischelsk's Jewish history. I say that it was the culmination of a journey, and indeed, on this journey, many, many moments have felt like the culmination. Each time I thought I had reached the end, new material would come forward and surprise me. When I realized that 2014 was the 75th anniversary of the beginning of World War II and also of the deportation from Neshelsk, I suggested to the group of people who had gathered to hold the memory of Nischelsk, more than 100 people whom I'd come into contact with, I suggested that we go back to Nischelsk 
and commemorate the loss of that Jewish community. I expected maybe 10 people to join me at the end of October in Poland. To my astonishment, more than 50 people agreed to join me. And we went back to Nashelsk at the end of October this past year. We met with the mayor. We spent several hours in the high school talking to the high school students, asking them questions about what they knew, and of course, letting them ask us questions. I realized, and I think this is so appropriate on Yom HaShoah, I realized that no, we were not going back there only to mourn, but we as a community held the memory of Jewish Nashelsk. And as a community of memory, we had something to offer, not only to each other and to uh, the other uh, members of the community uh, and the descendants of that community who live around the world, but also to the community in Poland, which had very little memory of the Jewish community that once formed more than two-thirds of their town. One of the people on this trip was Leslie Glodek, now 92 years old, who lives in London, a survivor from Nashelsk. There he is with his wife. And here at the bottom, I'll tell one last story of connection to, uh, uh, that occurred really after, uh, after I thought the story was over. Um, we have here on the right Mr. Chandler's daughter, em uh, uh, Evelyn Rosen, and her husband, Steve. And this young woman is a Polish woman named Martina Dudkiewicz. I said that Mr. Chandler had survived the war in Poland. He was in the Warsaw Ghetto with his family, and in May 1941, he escaped. He fled out of the city, and he ended up in the countryside east of Warsaw, which at that time, it was still possible for Jews to live in the countryside under their own names, not in disguise. He ended up on a farm of a Polish woman named Helena Jagodzinska. And Helena Jagodzinska gave him a job. He worked as a farmhand on the farm for almost a year until the spring of 1942. In the spring of 1942, the order came down that all Jews had to concentrate in ghettos. This was preparation for Operation Reinhardt, which was the first and most violent push of liquidation. The night before that order went into effect, Helena asked Maury what he was going to do. And he said, I'm run, I've run out of places to go. I guess I'll go to the ghetto. And she said, you're not going to a ghetto. Her nephew, Stanislav Pachnik, worked at the local county records office. And he stole a birth certificate. They gave this birth certificate to Mr. Chandler. They taught him the catechism, how to say the prayers of the morning and the night. And they said, try to be this person and they sent him on his way. Well, a birth certificate was by no means a guarantee of success, but it was an essential document, particularly for a boy, since there was one test you couldn't pass as a boy, no matter how good your documentation. It was important to have as much documentation as possible. There was a lot still for him to live through. Nevertheless, with this birth certificate and as this Polish farmhand, Mr. Chandler survived the war. In 2012, when Mr. Chandler and I first met, the Holocaust Museum filmed our encounter and made a brief video, which they published at the end of uh, 2012, about this film and how this boy, or this, this man's granddaughter, had seen her grandfather as a boy in the film. This was, of course, posted on YouTube. 
It was picked up by Polish television news. And one night at the end of December 2012, it was broadcast on their version of like Nightline. Helena Jagodzinska's daughter, now 89 years old, saw it and recognized Mr. Chandler as the boy her mother had helped. A few weeks later, I received a note on Facebook from her granddaughter, so Helena Jagodzinska's great-granddaughter, Martina Dudkevich. She said, yes, my family remembers Mr. Chandler. And when he left Helena's farm, he left behind a stack of photographs of his family, and we still have them. And so 73 years later, the great-granddaughter of Helena Jagodzinska sent me those photographs, and I gave them back to Mr. Chandler. So it was with these connections of fragments that existed scattered around the world that it became possible to pull together something of a story about the town of Nashelsk, Poland. When I set out, at first I thought I was going to make a memorial. And then I thought, well, perhaps I'll try and tell the history of the town. And I quickly realized that that was impossible and probably not even desirable. Just like the film, if we look at the film and we don't know what we're looking at, we think, ah, pre-war Poland. And we feel like we know something about pre-war Poland. But what we see in that film is three minutes of one day in a 1,000-year history. If we look at it and we know, oh, we're seeing Chaimnus and Zweikhoft for a second, and we're seeing Avram Kubel for a second, then what we realize is that we're not seeing something broad, but rather something very, very specific and narrow, a tiny, tiny fragment. But I think it's only by understanding how fragmentary the life of that community became, that we can really understand how much was truly lost. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.